From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Your phone knows a lot about your life, but it doesn't know everything. It knows exactly how many text messages you haven't read, but it doesn't know why you're avoiding them. It knows you're ordering takeout, but it doesn't know who's eating it. It's got the data, but it's missing the story. Sometimes you can sort of sense this. Maybe you're looking at a map and you toggle into street view. All of a sudden, instead of the data, you're looking at people with shopping bags and winter coats, the human reality behind the ones and zeros. Today's show is about a woman who woke up one morning with plenty of data and no idea what it really meant. Her phone held a mystery that she's been trying to solve ever since, gathering evidence, staring at a map, hoping to find out what happened to her that night two years ago. My colleagues Arin Carmon and Olivia Nat have been working on this story for months now, so I'm going to hand things over to them for the rest of the show. And before they get started, I should say that this is a story that includes graphic descriptions of sexual violence. If that's material you think you might have a hard time with, just a heads up. Okay, here's Arin. This story starts two years ago, with a woman doing something most of us have done a million times. Going out at the end of a long week to meet a couple friends for drinks, celebrate a birthday, eat a taco. It was the start of fall, which, like, I love, but it was warm enough for me to be wearing one of my favorite jumpsuits. I'd had a really intense week at work, and it was just, it was nice to sort of have that break and to, like, turn everything off. This is Allison Turcos. That night, at around 2 a.m., she did another thing we've all done a million times. She called a car to pick her up. I was definitely very tired. And I ordered a lift on my phone. And my friends decided that they were going to stay out. I got in the car and fell asleep. The next morning, Allison woke up feeling exhausted. Her body ached. When she replayed the night before, she couldn't quite remember getting back to the apartment and going to bed. The only memory that I had was getting into the car. Like, I literally could not move myself from bed. And I remember thinking, this is unlike any hangover that I've ever had before. I didn't drink that much last night. I just couldn't. Like, I literally could not lift myself from bed to, like, use the bathroom to get a glass of water. Then I got up, which is like, maybe a shower will make me feel better. I couldn't stand up in the shower. I had to sit down in the shower. And for like maybe 20 minutes, just like let the water wash over me. Like couldn't wash my body, couldn't wash my hair. She crawled back into bed and stayed there for hours. But eventually she had to get up because she'd promised to feed a friend's cat. Around like 7 o'clock, went to go order a lift, take me to the Lower East Side. When she clicked on the app, the previous night's receipt appeared. The first thing that I noticed was the price tag. It was three digits. I've never had a car ride be three digits. She'd ordered the lift to bring her from one spot in Brooklyn to another. At that time of night, it should have been a 15 to 20-minute ride. The price tag was $107.95. And I was like, this is bonkers. And my brain was working very, very slowly. So I was like, maybe I'm reading it wrong. And that's when she saw the map of the route the car took that night. And I see on the map that it had taken me to New Jersey. I have lived in New York since 2010. 
I've never been to Jersey City. And so I was like, this is, something's wrong. Like, this is wrong. So when you open the Lyft app, everything you see has been designed to let you think and interact as little as possible. You tap a few times, and a car arrives. For a while, Lyft was even considering a button you could press to tell your driver you weren't interested in small talk. The whole experience is so smooth, it can make you forget you're handing out your home address, getting into a stranger's Honda Accord, paying absolutely no attention to the roads they take to get you there. The algorithm knows the way. And if for some reason the algorithm doesn't or something goes wrong, you can always contact customer service. That's what Allison did soon after seeing her map to New Jersey. They said it looked like the driver had forgotten to end the ride, and they offered to refund most of her money. But she still felt like something wasn't right. I immediately screenshot it and I sent it to two friends. I was like, WTF, this was my ride home last night. One of the people she sent it to was her best friend, Morgan. And then Morgan started to do her own detective work. They opened the lift receipt and they zoomed in on the map. It looked like her driver had taken her from Brooklyn to Manhattan, Manhattan to New Jersey. In New Jersey, they'd gone as far as a small state park on the Hudson River, and then they turned around and they headed back. Two bridges, two tunnels, two states, three landmasses. Morgan was like, let's Google map how long it would take to get from Crown Heights to Liberty State Park to Williamsburg at 2.30 in the morning. Would it take as long as this says? No. Why was he in Liberty State Park? What was he doing? Because what should have been a 15 to 17-minute ride home turned into 79 minutes and 44 seconds. They knew exactly how long the ride was because Lyft told them. It was right there, on the bottom of her receipt. Then Morgan was like, let's look at your step tracker on your phone. They could see that Allison's phone recorded spiking movement about an hour after she got into the car. And again, at the time, she was dropped off. Of course, they knew that the step tracker was finicky, recorded all kinds of movement. But still, why would her phone be moving around so much? What had happened between 3.10 and 3.30 a.m.? There was something else, too. When Allison had woken up that morning after her ride home, she'd noticed bruises on her knees. And then when she went to the bathroom, there was blood, and it hurt to pee. Then I was the one who suggested I should get an internal exam. She figured she could just go to her doctor. But her doctor's office called the next morning and told her she needed to go to the hospital. And her next words were the first time that, like, it really sunk into me because I think I was still in the world of disbelief. Her next words were, I think you need to have a rape kit done. And I just broke down. Allison had been raped twice as a teenager, but she had never reported it. This would be her first time. And we walked to the hospital. I had never said the word rape out loud in this experience. She and Morgan were taken to a small exam room where a nurse started the rape kit. It comes in a cardboard box, and there's an envelope for, like, every single um, piece of evidence. So, like, the hair that they pluck from your head, everything. Your body is a physical manifestation of a crime scene. And there are certain parts of the exam that you can opt out of. Um, 
I don't know how graphic I should get, but um, it's up to you. Okay, yeah. So like, um, if they're like going to swap your rectum, you can opt out of that. Um, and because I had severe memory loss, I like I just consented to everything. The hospital asked her whether they should call the cops. Allison's an activist. She organized New York's first slut walk, spurred by a Toronto police officer who said that women should avoid dressing like sluts if they didn't want to be raped. She knew that involving the police didn't always serve victims. She knew they might ask questions like, how much did you drink? What were you wearing? But she decided to talk to the cops anyway because she wanted to know what had happened to her. The four uniformed officers who showed up didn't ask if she'd been dressed like a slut. Allison says they had a more basic question. Like two of them, I think, didn't know what Lyft was. And so then Morgan and I had to describe to them like what Lyft was, how it worked, how you ordered a car. By this point in 2017, ride-hailing apps had been operating in New York for at least six years. And yet Allison had to explain why she hadn't just taken a cab, why using an app on her phone would have felt safer and more convenient. Allison was taken to a police precinct, where she showed the detective assigned to her case everything she had. And because she'd been in a lift, she had a lot. All the data about her ride and her driver was right there, in her hand. When you could see the screen grab that it was a three-digit amount, could you see his face in that little picture? And you had his name? Mm -hmm. I had his first name, his photo, the make and model of the car, and his um, taxi limo commission license number. To Allison, it felt like she'd given them everything they could possibly need. But weeks passed. She didn't hear anything. She started emailing her detective, but got vague, noncommittal answers. Then, the day after Christmas, after waiting more than two months, Allison got a call. The results from her rape kit had come in. We looked at those results. They didn't find anything on Allison's body, but she'd taken a shower and used the bathroom multiple times before going to the hospital. They did, however, find sperm cells on her underwear. Allison says she knew the semen couldn't have come from a consensual experience. She dates both men and women, but hadn't slept with a man in over a month and was seeing a woman at the time. The lab's report left her with so many questions for her detective. Have you brought the driver in for questioning? Have you gotten a DNA sample from him? Does this match him? Like, is he in custody? She got very few answers. To this day, she isn't even sure when they brought the driver in for questioning. But three months later a second round of DNA testing came back. On March 18th, she confirms that there's two semen samples in the kit. In this round, the lab had tested more of Allison's clothing. And on her silvery jumpsuit, in an area the report called Stain 16, the medical examiner found the DNA of two different men. There were, like, multiple traces of semen found in my rape kit. It means that there were multiple perpetrators. And I was like, I don't know how to process an emotion when I don't have a memory that matches it. Sperm cells on her underwear. More from two men on her jumpsuit. But with all this information came a new mystery. Because that same day, Allison's detective told her, that neither of the DNA samples matched the Lyft drivers. Now she knew even less about what had happened to her that night. Allison needed answers, 
and she didn't trust her detective to get them for her. She decided it was time to file a formal complaint with the NYPD. And I was like, I don't want her on my case. She's done nothing. My perpetrator is still on the street. Later, Allison would sue the NYPD. She said it had systemically failed sexual assault victims and, quote, severely hampered her own investigation. When we asked the NYPD about this case, they didn't comment on the specifics, but they said the NYPD takes sexual assault cases extremely seriously and urged anyone who's been a victim to file a police report. After Allison complained about her first detective, she was told that a, quote, more efficient member of the unit would be handling her case. Six months after walking into a police precinct for the first time, she was starting from scratch with two new detectives. They brought her in for an interview, asked open-ended questions, and listened as Allison told what she knew of the whole thing. And it was the first time that I had ever felt like, oh, something is happening. Months later, someone is actually going to do something. That interview seemed to shake something loose in her subconscious. I slowly had some memories come back. In the beginning, it was snippets. I had this recurring dream where I'm in the back of a car and we're, like, speeding uncontrollably so fast down a road, but I don't know what the road is. And the only thing that you can see are all of these awnings. And you can't read them, but it's like an Asian-type script. And it's so fast, and I can't control anything. I can't control my body, and I'm just, like, moving everywhere. And then all of a sudden, the car comes to a complete stop. She would wake up crying. And flashes of the dream were coming to her during the day, too. She started to think, maybe it wasn't a dream. Maybe it was a memory. Allison was worried her detectives wouldn't take her seriously, but she decided to tell them anyway. This is going to be the least helpful thing ever, but this is what I remember. And they were like, we think that we should do a reenactment ride. That would mean driving to New Jersey, going to the state park on the lift map, trying to recreate everything that happened that night. When Allison told us about this, it sounded surreal, like some kind of seance to bring back the ghosts of that night. But we spoke with one of Allison's detectives. He said that reenactments were just part of his checklist in the Special Victims Department, an ordinary step in procedure. He's done them many times, and he's seen firsthand how just putting someone back at the scene can bring out a level of detail he'd never get in an interview room. These reenactments can be really triggering. That's literally the point. Were you scared? Oh, yeah. You have no clue what to expect. Like, am I going to fail? Like, what if we do this? And what if no memories come back? Or like, what if I, re I remember half of something? What if I don't, quote unquote, like, do a good job? I'm now sitting in a space of I remember nothing. And I had sort of gotten used to that. And then it's like, what if I remember everything? And then I have to live with that. Once she decided she was ready, the detectives walked Allison through how it would go down. They were like, because you got picked up at dark, we have to pick you up in the dark. So, like, let's start it at 930. And they said, we know that you would most likely want to bring someone along as, like, a support system. But they had said, you can't. Like, it's really important. You were in the car alone. It's really important that you do this alone. And then they had said, um, wear something comfortable. And I made the joke, and I was like, 
cool. It's like, do you think that there's some sort of like New York mag or like cosmopolitan, you know, like write up about like what to wear on your kidnap and rape, you know, reenactment? There isn't. But she had another jumpsuit. So she put it on along with the bangle bracelets she'd been wearing that night. And she walked to the bar where the Lyft driver had picked her up nine months before. They were sitting outside the entrance, like on the other side of the street, and they were in an unmarked police car. And they like, you know, jumped out and said hello. And um, they basically were like, this is how it's going to go down. This person is driving. This person is going to take notes. You're going to be in the back of the seat. And they were like, anything that you can do, move your body, um, try to open the door. Um, They were like, we acknowledge that this is going to be triggering as fuck. But the thing that's really important is that we do our best to recreate every possible moment. And so we start driving and both of them on their phone have the map that they've made internally within the NYPD and then also the lift map that they have. That night, they were going to follow the exact route of the lift. Every turn, every stop sign, every line on the map. We start driving down St. John's, and the minute that we took a left onto Bedford, something had clicked in me. My breathing started to change, and the detective who was driving, who was I had spent more time with and was a little bit closer with, he f- flipped on the siren lights, and he just stops the car in the middle of the street and throws the car into park and just turns around and was like, can you tell me what you're thinking? Can you tell me what you're feeling? I want to check in with you. Like, what's coming back? And then, like, everything just started to come back. And I was like, that night in October, the minute that we took the left onto Bedford Avenue, I closed my eyes because it's a straight shot from Crown Heights to Williamsburg on Bedford. And so I just sort of, you know entrusted this person and was like, this is how you go, and that's it. And getting to close your eyes in the back of the car, that's a huge part of why apps like Lyft are so appealing. You've outsourced the entire interaction to your phone ahead of time. You're in the hands of the algorithm. And that automated process makes you feel safe, or at least safer. That's a huge selling point. So yeah, Allison saw they were headed the right way, and she unplugged. And so then when we get to the start of the Manhattan Bridge... There's either, like, a divot and or there's just some sort of, like, a bump in the road. And the minute that we went over it, I just, like, yelled and I was like, that was it. And so once again, we pull over, the lights go on, and so we get out and we're on the street and cars are, like, zooming past us. And we're literally just, like, looking at this divot in the road. And I was like, this is the moment when I woke up. What Allison remembered. That's after the break. Welcome back. When we left off, Allison Durkos was standing by the side of the road, staring at a divot at the entrance to the Manhattan Bridge. She and two NYPD detectives were on a reenactment ride, trying to jog her memory of the night she was taken to New Jersey in a lift. And it was working. Here's what she remembered. I woke up because there was, like, a pretty intense thud, um, which was when I realized that the driver was taking me over the Manhattan Bridge, which, if anyone is familiar with Brooklyn, to go from Crown Heights to Williamsburg, you don't have to leave Brooklyn. And so I realized all of a sudden that we're going over a bridge, and I just say to the driver, I'm like, where are you? What are we doing? We don't need to do this. I realized he probably assumed that I was asleep and he was going to take the long way 
and he probably went on an extra 20 to 30 bucks. And so I was like, at the first red light, I'll just hop out of the car. I'm going to eat $30. I don't care. I'm just going to hop out of the car and I'll hop in a cab and it'll be fine. I start sort of like just tapping on the window and being like, I want to go there. Like, this is where I want to go. What are you doing? Um, And he's sort of saying like, it's fine. Like, go back to sleep. Like, it's fine. And so we stop at a red light. I'm in the passenger side back seat and I try to open the door and the door doesn't open. And that night I was wearing a group of like bangle bracelets. And so anytime that like I moved or breathed, these bracelets would make noise. And so I'm trying to open the back door and it won't open. And I'm not panicking and I'm just thinking, oh, this door is broken. We continue on to the next light. And so at the next red light, I moved my body to the driver's side door in the back seat and attempted to open that door. Did not open. And that was when like sheer and utter panic set in. Because I realized there's no way that both of these doors are broken. I then tried multiple times to the point that I thought that I was going to break that door handle. And so then the harder that I try, because I was like, maybe magically it will open, uh, my bracelets start to make a lot of noise. I start to breathe really heavily. He then turns around and pulls a gun and just tells me to shut the fuck up. I didn't move for the rest of the ride. That recurring dream she'd been having was starting to make sense. She'd been dreaming about awnings with Asian characters. And on the other side of the Manhattan Bridge is Chinatown. Allison realized this must have been when she tried to get out of the car. Back at the reenactment, Allison and the detectives did get out of the car. They took some pictures of awnings and then headed to the Holland Tunnel to get to New Jersey. And so as we're about to get in the tunnel, the detective who's driving just says, like, I just want to acknowledge, like, I think this could be the hardest if you need to stop, if whatever you need to do, if you want us to turn around, like, just let us know. And so we get in the Holland Tunnel and I, and it's just like, every single move that we made, memories just came back. And it was like, you know, the way that the driver's shoulders were positioned or him looking at me in the rearview mirror or us getting to Jersey City From Jersey City, they made their way to Liberty State Park. It's connected to Ellis Island by a bridge, with views of Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty all lit up at night. But Allison probably wouldn't have seen any of that on the night of the lift ride. There's a dirt turnoff at the park entrance. She couldn't quite remember where they'd parked, but from the map it looks like that's where they might have pulled in. And now with her detectives, she was back. I was like so triggered and so distraught that I had to sit on the ground. And one detective came over to me and, like, bent down, and I put my hands in front of me, and I was like, I need you to get the fuck away from me. You have no idea what's happening to me right now. I was like, I just need you to, like, not look at me, to not talk to me. I was like, I don't care if you, like, go and, like, call a fucking site. Like, I don't care what you do. I just need five minutes. It was like I was living it again. Then we, in a, like, very weird way, like, 
reenacted the rape. She could remember the driver pulling in. And another car sitting there, waiting. We met two other men. The three of them proceeded to take turns raping me. I was in the back of the car. I disassociated at some point. Um, And they would cheer each other on at some point in time or say things to me in an attempt to make it seem as if it was consensual. I am queer, and I don't know if my perpetrators, either because of my haircut or the driver of the car, saw me interact with the other two people that I was with, but there were things that they said to me that were homophobic and or queerphobic. It's like, how many ways can we beat you down? After the lift ride, when Allison had woken up disoriented and noticed bruises on her legs, she'd had no idea where they came from. Now she felt like she knew. I had bruising on my knees because my knees were hitting the car door frame. So, like, when we talk about, like, the memories coming back, it's like I can connect the dots. It's also, like, horrifying to connect the dots and to think, like, In October 2017, I wasn't able to know why there were bruises on my body. And then in July of 2018, to be able to be like, oh, there are bruises on my body because three men raped me. And so, like, it's those things. Were they acting out the role of the rapists? Yeah. The detectives were playing the role of the rapists, but also attempting to give me space, but simultaneously it's hard to because they want to know, like I was wearing a jumpsuit that night. And so trying to understand, like, was the jumpsuit off of my body? Was it on? Was it on the ground? Was it, you know, and so they're standing over me. They're not literally like laying on top of my body. And I get it. Like, I understand why detectives ask you, can you describe the pubic hair of the perpetrators. Like, do you remember these things? But it's also just the idea of, like, do you have any fucking clue what's happening right now? I had just what felt like unzipped my entire body and just, like, come out a wholly different person. Eventually, Allison would find out from Lyft's data that she and the driver had spent 22 minutes in the park. The reenactment took much longer than that. By the time they got back into the police car and headed to Brooklyn, it was the middle of the night. When you exit the Holland Tunnel coming back into New York City, there's a sign that says, Welcome to New York, because you're crossing state lines. And the memory that I had in that moment that I remembered was on that night, my only thought that I had had the entire ride home was like, at least if he's going to kill me, I'm going to be closer to home. Once she had just stared at that line on a map, the screen grabbed on her phone. Now she had memories attached to every stop and start. She remembered her driver pulling up to the apartment in Williamsburg where she'd wanted to go all along. And then he just said, have a good night. And I was under the assumption that I was not going to move and that he had to get out of the car. 
to let me out because the door wasn't going to open. And we sat there for a few seconds, and then I tried to open the door, and it opened, which my assumption is now that he had child safety locks on the door. And I got out of the car and went upstairs and went to bed. And when I woke up the next morning, I had zero memory of this. When we spoke to one of the detectives who did the reenactment with Allison, he said he'd never had a case where so much information came back, that he felt like they'd hit the ball out of the park. It wasn't like they were going to slap handcuffs on anyone the next day. There were still a ton of questions to answer, but it did give them a lot more to work with. In one night, everything changed for Allison. She went from remembering nothing to being able to describe the position of someone's shoulders. It's like an avalanche or a flood, and things just come back so quickly and so vividly. Everything comes back in terms of colors and sounds, and and I think it's also, in a very strange way, a relief, because I was just in this sort of, like, fog of, I remember this, or I remember this color, but I don't know if I remember... And then to have everything just, like, come back, it's sort of like you're putting a puzzle piece together of your life. And it's just the idea of, like, was my brain protecting me because of so many horrific things that happened that night? Yeah, it can be an avalanche. It can be little pieces that come over months. Um, But, you know, this happens all the time. This is Jim Hopper, a clinical psychologist. Suddenly getting your memories back might sound like something that only happens in soap operas, but Jim is an expert in how our brains deal with trauma. And he says that people often confuse the difference between what is stored in the brain, tucked away for later use, and what people can remember at any given time. Just because something is well stored in the brain doesn't mean you're necessarily going to retrieve it or recall it at any particular time. And so people can go for years or even decades without retrieving information that is deeply burned into their brain. And if we think about how memory works, memory isn't even so much about the past, right? Memory is about our brain prioritizing things that might be useful in the future. And then whether they get queued up and recalled is a function of your brain's assessment of, is this information going to be useful in this situation? And for people who have been assaulted, for people who have been abused repeatedly, often their brain is making the judgment you know, involuntarily, automatically, and not choosing to do this, that it is not a good idea to remember this. It's going to serve no use. It's going to be overwhelming, and they don't retrieve it. But then later, maybe when they actually feel safe or when they have some, you know, something that reminds them of their bodies in a state that it was in at that time, and then the right specific cues come in, the memory comes flooding back. Jim says there's only so much we can know about how trauma and memory are related because scientists can't put people in a lab, do terrible things to them, and see what happens to their brains. But we know some. Two months after Allison's reenactment, we all got a very public lesson in trauma in the brain. Indelible in the hippocampus is the laughter. When Christine Blasey Ford, professor of psychology, testified against Brett Kavanaugh during his Senate confirmation hearing. The uproarious laughter between the two and their having fun at my expense. Ford was explaining why she couldn't remember certain things, how she got home from the party, when exactly took place. But decades later could be sure it was Brett Kavanaugh who tried to rape her when they were teenagers. Republicans were settling on a talking point. 
Somebody had hurt Ford, but it wasn't Kavanaugh, and her memory had tricked her. Outside the Senate Judiciary hearing room, not far from Ford, stood Allison, protesting. I approached Joe Manchin in an elevator and was like, how can you vote yes on this? I shared my story in Susan Collins' office, and I remember, like, bearing my soul in Washington, D.C., because I did not want Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh gets confirmed. I come back, and I have a call scheduled with my FBI agent. Now she had an FBI agent. Because of everything Allison remembered during the reenactment, her detectives believed that a crime had been committed across state lines. And that made it the FBI's job. For Allison, getting to this point had been so exhausting. And Kavanaugh's confirmation made her feel like giving up. The very first thing that I said to him was, I don't think we should move forward with this. I was like, I don't understand how you want me to move forward with this in a legal system when we're stacking courts with perpetrators. Allison has so many things Christine Blasey Ford didn't have. There's a rape kit, there's DNA evidence, phone records, and a police investigation. She now has clear and vivid memories of that night. And then there are the records from Lyft, the thumbnail photo of her driver's face, and the map to New Jersey that started this whole thing. Allison's phone has always known where she was that night, even if she couldn't remember. And Lyft knew where Allison was, too. As my producer Olivia and I worked on this story, Olivia kept coming back to the same question. What was Lyft's responsibility in all this? The day Allison woke up and first looked at that $107 car ride to New Jersey, she'd messaged Lyft. The message said, My driver took me to New Jersey last night when I clearly was going from one spot in Brooklyn to another. Then she called them. Within the Lyft app, they have like a customer service. And I spoke to someone and I was like, something is really not right. Allison says she didn't use the word sexual assault on that call. But she did repeat that they'd crossed state lines without her consent. Lyft's response was that they would indefinitely unpair me from the driver and that they would refund me, not for the entire ride, but they would calculate what the ride from Crown Heights to Williamsburg would be. She'd end up being charged $12.81 for what happened that night. In response to her message, Lyft said it looked like the driver may have forgotten to end the ride or maybe there had been a technical glitch. They apologized for any inconvenience and said, we at Lyft always aim to provide the best service there is. When we reached out to Lyft, they told us they have a specially trained safety team that investigates, quote, each and every incident they receive. But to get to that team, you have to go through a call center. I spoke with someone who used to work on Lyft's critical response line, the entry-level call center for interacting with passengers and drivers. And he said a lot of the calls he took were actually from drivers who'd been screamed at by passengers or called racial slurs. He also said that multiple times a day, he was fielding calls from passengers about creepy drivers who had asked women on dates or said things that otherwise made them uncomfortable. That calls like this were so common, he found himself becoming numb to them. Then there were the calls where the room would go quiet, when he felt like a 911 operator with little training. And in a way, he was. He said people often called the line he worked before they called the police, just like Allison did. They called concussed after car accidents or fearful of a driver who tried to grope them. But there were no Lyft police to dispatch. I'm just a 20-something who needs insurance, he said. Nobody told me this was what my job was going to be. In the weeks following Allison's ride, she thought about filing a lawsuit against Lyft. I had talked to a couple of lawyers in New York, 
and was consistently met with, you have no case. And no one was ever confident or had any sort of legal like strategy to do it. It was almost as if like Lyft was untouchable. After that, Allison put thoughts of a lawsuit against Lyft aside. Between the NYPD, the FBI, the Supreme Court, and working a full-time job, there were plenty of other institutions to deal with. But then, just a few months ago, she saw an article. A law firm in San Francisco was representing seven women who were suing Lyft after being sexually assaulted by drivers. Allison picked up the phone and called. I was horrified by the number of calls we got. This is Megan McCormick. She's a lawyer, and Allison was just one of the many women she heard from after her law firm put a notice about rideshare assaults on their website. We currently represent, I would say, close to 130 clients. We've turned down hundreds more, um, mostly for statute of limitations reasons. So the number of inquiries we got was astounding. She's representing Allison in her suit against Lyft, filed just a few weeks ago. As of right now, the firm has filed 18 cases. Like Allison's, many of the other women's stories begin with them falling asleep. These women describe being forcibly groped or held captive in cars for hours or raped in their homes. Some involve criminal convictions, others not even charges. All of the lawsuits say that, quote, Lyft has been on notice that its drivers have been sexually harassing, sexually assaulting, and raping its passengers since at least 2015 and, quote, since learning of the sexual assaults perpetrated by its drivers, Lyft never adapted or improved its safety procedures in any meaningful way. It's really about Lyft's responsibility for the actions of its drivers. And it seems to be wanting to talk out of both sides of its mouth. On the one hand, saying, we can assure you that our drivers have been screened and can get you home safely and will get you home safely. But then when something goes wrong and a woman is sexually assaulted, they don't take responsibility for it. And instead, their legal position is, that was an independent contractor. We're not responsible for his actions. Lyft sent us a statement. In it, they said that Allison first reported her incident as an indirect route and that they first learned that she was alleging sexual assault from a Wall Street Journal article published in May of 2018, roughly seven months after Allison's ride. And then it wasn't until a week after that article came out that they received their first subpoena from the NYPD. They also said, quote, What Ms. Turcos describes is awful and something no one should have to endure. We are reviewing the claims alleged in Ms. Turcos's lawsuit, and while we cannot comment on the specific allegations in her lawsuit, we take them extremely seriously and are investigating them carefully. The behavior described in her lawsuit is unacceptable, not just on our platform, but for our society. It's obviously not on Lyft to solve all of rape culture. But Lyft has explicitly branded itself against Uber as the more progressive and friendly option. They're the pink mustache guys. They lean heavily on the word community. Lyft did big business during the Delete Uber campaign, when Uber was accused of trying to profit off a taxi strike protesting the Muslim ban. The strike happened on a Saturday. On Sunday, Lyft pledged a million dollars to the ACLU. They saw a 40% increase in app downloads that weekend. They run Get Home Safe campaigns with the organization It's On Us, offering free rides to college students after a night out. When Uber was getting called out for its sexist corporate culture, Lyft's president said in an interview, we're a better boyfriend. It was marketing designed to attract people like Allison, and it worked. They were doing so much 
great stuff that aligned with my personal ideologies. Uber is terrible. We're all moving to Lyft. I thought that night I was being a good fucking feminist and I was making a safe decision. And look at where it fucking got me. Allison's lawsuit argues that as a result of the Get Home Safe branding and Lyft's not warning customers about the possibility that they might be assaulted, quote, many women enter Lyft cars unaccompanied and after drinking with the expectation that they will not be harassed, propositioned, kidnapped, attacked, stalked, raped, or worse by Lyft drivers. They're asking for damages. But Allison's suit also suggests steps Lyft could take towards the elimination of sexual assaults on its platform by adding new features to the app. Features like a camera that the driver can't switch off during a ride, and a new system that will alert Lyft if a ride ends early or goes way off course, so they can check in with passengers and ask, is this what you wanted? If the technology was set up such that Lyft was notified, whoa, this driver is crossing the Manhattan Bridge rather than going to someplace three miles away in Brooklyn, what's going on? And somehow confirming with Allison, are you okay? Is this what you wanted? And if no response or a response that doesn't indicate she is indeed safe, contacting the authorities, this would have never happened. If there was a camera in the car, I'm not sure this driver would have been as emboldened as he was to take her across state lines to be gang raped. In the wake of these lawsuits, Lyft announced some changes. For example, they've now added a button so you can call 911 directly through the app. And later this year, they plan to roll out a feature that will monitor unexplained delays. If a ride is taking longer than it should, Lyft will reach out to the passenger and driver. Many of the solutions suggested by the lawsuits are demands for more data. Video records, more GPS tracking, push alerts, and back-end tweaks. Like, if we can just collect enough data, build a wall of ones and zeros around ourselves, we can fix this. But if Allison's case can tell us anything, it's that data might make you feel safe but it doesn't necessarily save you. It's been two years this week since Allison got in the back of that lift and closed her eyes. Two years, five detectives, one reenactment, a rape kit with semen from unknown men, data showing 22 minutes in a New Jersey park, and a still unsolved case. My life has just been, like, hanging on this investigation and hanging on when I'm going to hear something and hanging on when we're going to meet and hanging on when I'm going to get a phone call. I'm waiting. So nobody's been arrested. No one's been arrested. No one's in custody. No one's been charged. Have they been able to identify the other men? No, not to this, not at this moment. And the driver still has a valid taxi and limousine commission license. That is correct. That he renewed in June of 2019. Lyft says they've now banned the driver. He's still got a valid TLC license, though, which means he could still be driving a taxi or picking up passengers for another rideshare app. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Lynn Levy, Stella Bugby, and Nazneen Rafsanjani. Fact-checking is by Katherine Barner. Special thanks to Morgan Hopkins, Peter Bresnan, Kate Parkinson Morgan, Via Benin, J.R. Santos, Charles Stone, Richard Relkin, 
Lindsay Barrett, Adeline Sire, Jeremy Dalmas, Ted Hart, Jorge Just, and Marissa Carroll. Mixing by Haley Shaw and Bobby Lord. Music by Haley Shaw and Emma Munger. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvanesso. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.